My name is Justin Craig. I am the family minister here at Windsor Road, and uh, I really thought that would just be, you know, hey, just close out the service and we'll just go home. That's fine. They told me I couldn't do that. Um, We're about to enter into the series called Encounters with Jesus. This morning, we're going to talk about life change. I was going to a wedding in June of 2006 in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Somebody from Minnesota? It's got to be colder there than it is here. Got to be. My fiance at the time, now, now my wife, was in the wedding. She was the maid of honor, her best friend, best childhood friend, getting married in this beautiful chapel. So I was attending the wedding with my soon-to-be in-laws. In preparation for the wedding, like most guys would probably do at, at, at 20, 22, I went to my closet and I, I went through the checklist. I went, shirt? Yep. Got me one of them. Uh, tie? Yeah, that doesn't match at all, but nobody's looking at me, so it doesn't matter. Okay, shoes? Yep, got those. Black pants? Oh, I'm set. Good. Throw it all into a duffel bag, you know, nice and neatly. And uh, then we, you know, make our way up to Minneapolis. We're about an hour and a half before the wedding starts, and we're starting to get ready, you know, just looking all nice and everything. So I'm in the bathroom, and I'm, you know, getting my shirt on. I'm like, shirt? Oh, yeah. Check. Tie? Look at that knot. That is a good looking knot. It's nice and centered. This is good. Okay. Pants. Whew. Well, they're a little tight. And uh, yeah. Uh, see, I bought the pants four years prior to that when I was in high school. And a college student doesn't have much use for nice black pants. These weren't even nice black pants, but I didn't have any use for them except for weddings, okay? And uh, I put them on, and a little bit of a struggle getting them on, okay? I felt like my legs were going to start to fall asleep. I was wondering if I was going to set the world record for longest pant button fly. Um, You know, it was just, I had no idea what was in store for me that day. It was extremely hot for whatever reason, June in, or yeah, June in, in Minneapolis. It was really hot. It had just rained, and so the humidity was kind of, you know, you know, doing what humidity does, and it just, it just did not feel good, and so I get my, get my shirt tucked in, which that felt even better, by the way. It was now exposing the, what looked to be like a raccoon wrestling into my shirt, okay? It's just, you guys all know where we're going here, okay? And, and it was just, it was not good, okay? So we, we are now walking out of, of the hotel room. We're, we're getting to the chapel. I'm like, okay, it's really hot out here. I'm like dripping with sweat. I've got, you know, sweat, you know, stains under the armpits that I feel like everybody can see, and it's just hot. So we, we get in the chapel. I'm like, oh, good. It's, it's going to feel so good in here. But the chapel was built in like 1906, and in order to keep it restored, we just didn't want to put air conditioning in it. So I'm like, awesome. So we get inside, and it's hotter in there. But good thing, good thing, they opened the stained glass windows for ventilation. And if I was 12 and a half feet tall, that would have worked, but it didn't because there was no breeze coming down. And it was just awful. Okay, so I'm sitting in the ceremony, which seemed to be one or two days, and it was just, it was just long, and I'm just sitting there just going, this is so bad. My sister-in-law, soon-to-be sister-in-law, leans over, and she goes, are you okay? I'm like, no. <laughs> What's the matter? She's like, I heard your stomach rumbling. Are you, are you hungry? I'm like, no, it's, it's crying out in pain. And I'm like, I'm like, I'm not hungry at all. And she's like, you look pretty bad. I'm like, thanks. Be quiet. And it was just, you know, my stomach started to make those noises that was like, and it was like during the prayer 
And it was like everybody in like an eight pew radius had to have heard what was going on. Just did not, it was not a good time. Sitting there just dripping with sweat. Things are just not going well. Finally, the ceremony ends and, you know, my fiance comes back. I get to stand, which was a glorious thing. You know, make sure that the blood was still flowing in my legs and everything. I get to stand up. She comes back. Stephanie looks at me. She goes, you don't look so good. I'm like, thanks. She's like, she's like, what's the matter with you? I'm like, my pants are too tight. I don't know what to do. I'm scared. I don't know. And she's like, well, when was the last time you put them on? I'm like, in high school. She's like, well, you look a lot different than high school. I'm like, thank you, Captain Obvious. Tell me something tomorrow about, you know, something that I should have done today. And it's just, so I, I, we finally, she's like, well, you'll be fine. There's only like a three-hour reception. I'm like, oh, Lord. I don't think I can make it. And so I, we get to the reception, and of course, every reception, it's got cake, and I've got to eat cake, because if you ever had cake, it's delicious. So I have some cake, and I'm just feeling a little bit worse, and my stomach is just crying out in this dire need, let me go! And it just, it's not happening. And then the really fun part happens, they dance. <laughs> yes! Dancing, I'm just like, I can't feel my legs, this is really fun. We finally get back to the hotel. And I rushed to the bathroom. I put my jeans back on and it was a sweet release. It was so wonderful. And it was just like, this is, this is the way it's supposed to be. And my stomach started to settle back down. It was so nice. And there's two major things that I learned from that day. Is one, change can be extremely uncomfortable. <laughs> just waiting for you guys to get there. Change can be extremely uncomfortable. And sometimes, sometimes we are unaware of how much we have changed. You see, life change. When I, when I told my in-laws uh, that I'd be preaching, they said, what are you preaching about? I'm like, oh, I'm preaching on life change. And she's like, can you describe that a little bit? I was like, that's a good place to start. So life change, as according to Justin, okay, this is not the life change definition that we all chant during staff meetings or anything like that. But life change, as I would define it, is a moment-by-moment -moment surrender of my everything for his everything. To give up my best to receive his purpose. To give up my worst to receive his recovery. To give up my resources to receive his provisions. To give up my time to receive his will. To give up my desires to receive his passion. To give up my sins to receive his redemption. Life change doesn't happen once. It happens every moment of every day. We either change for the positive or the negative, but we do change every day. Life change in Christ is exactly what the Apostle Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5.17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Paul knows about leaving the old behind and chasing the new life that Jesus offers. If you don't know the Apostle Paul's backstory, see, he wrote, he wrote a lot of the letters in the New Testament, but before he was a writer, he was the one that was leading the charge against Christians. His name was Saul at the time, and that's the story we're going to talk about this morning in Acts chapter 9. If you guys have your Bibles, we can, can turn there to Acts chapter 9. The story of Saul. I'll start reading in Acts chapter 9, verse 1 through 19. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. 
As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man named Tarsus, from a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. We first hear of Saul a few chapters before this in chapter 7, okay? Chapter 7 is, is, the, is the awful story of the death of Stephen. Stephen was a preacher. He was killed by people throwing rocks at him until he died. It says right there at the end of that portion of Scripture that Saul was there giving his approval to this. Saul's not starting out very well. He gets these letters from the high priest in the synagogue to go to the synagogues in Damascus where a lot of Christ followers have gone. His encounter with Jesus is dramatic and sudden. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He answers with this, who are you, Lord? And this is not a Lord in the same way that you and I would reference Jesus, but it's a Lord as more of a respectful sir. Jesus replies, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. I love verse 5 here because Jesus, when Jesus speaks to Saul, he does not identify himself as a divine being. He does not give him any analogy as I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, I'm, I'm the shepherd, or I'm the dove. No, he says plainly, I am Jesus, so that there is no doubt in Saul's mind who he's talking to. No doubt at all. This also gives, gives Saul an indication of Jesus is alive. The disciples are, are right. This is also the last post-resurrection appearance that we have of Jesus. Blinded Saul is then led into a city where he experiences the most intense type of fast. He goes three days without food or drink. This type of fast was normally associated with extreme repentance or seeking God's faith. face. Both of these apply here. Saul also encountered this man named Ananias. Ananias was called specifically by God to be the first one with Saul after his conversion, which was terrifying because Saul was coming to arrest people like him. Ananias goes to the house, calls him brother, 
and place his hands on him. He's in there for his baptism. He shares a meal with him. Let's continue reading in Acts chapter 9, verse 20. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. But they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the disciples. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He, was talk, he talked and debated with the Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church through Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. His initial interaction with the disciples did not go as planned. They were a little hesitant. And then Barnabas steps in and he says, no, this man, he's seen Jesus. He had an encounter with him. He is a follower. He then joins the disciples and continues to speak boldly in the name of Jesus. Saul's encounter with Jesus sparks two major shifts in his life that I think we need to pay attention to. The first one is this, is this change in his life. And by change, I mean recovery, repair, and restoration. In that order, recovery, repair, and restoration. You see, God is calling, just like he called, just like he called Saul, he is calling us out of something. To live in his everything for his everything. So what is it that Jesus came to call Saul out of? It was this oppression, this torment and persecution of Jesus. Not just the church and not just Christians, but of Jesus himself. And so what, what does Jesus come to call us out of? What are the possessions in our lives that are persecuting Jesus? You see, these possessions of persecution are not just pulling us away from Jesus, but they might hinder others because they can't see Jesus in us. So what is it that we are recovered, repaired, and restored back to? It's the image of God. Now there may be some of you that are saying, but Justin, you don't know my history. You don't know what happened last night. You don't know what my thoughts were before I entered this building today. You don't know my past, and you're right, I don't. You may be thinking, I'm too far gone for this kind of change. I'm just here because there's no other place to go. Or maybe you were like me this week and you were thinking, I'm too far into my Christianity to admit that I've screwed up majorly. Well, no matter how far away from God you have run, no matter how much sin has piled up in your mind and heart, no matter the pain that has camped out in your past, the first thing your past holds is the image of God. It says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, 
that God created man in his own image. The first thing your past holds is the image of God. And God would not put his name on you if you were not worth having. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, he says that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. See, change goes hand in hand with messiness, brokenness, and weakness. If you're experiencing life change, then you're experiencing messiness. You cannot have one without the other because in order to truly experience something new, you have to be called out of something old, and that can be painful. Colossians 1, 13 through 14, Paul writes, For he, God, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. As Jesus appeared to Saul on that road, Saul's need for Jesus became clear. His need for change became clear. And his inability without Jesus became clear. Jesus' light illuminates his authenticity, clarifies our messiness, and calls us back to his image. Change begins with God because he has established a standard of righteousness that we violate through the sins that we build up in our lives. And we justify these violations, right? We justify our sins sometimes because if we are truly honest, we certainly don't want to be held accountable for these violations. We don't want to be counted wrong and we certainly don't want to be questioned. However, people that can't be questioned end up doing questionable things. Andy Stanley writes, our day-to-day problems surpass our problem-solving abilities with overwhelming regularity. We need a father that will exercise his supreme power to establish a plan that will rescue us from us. We need a son that will take our punishment and earn forgiveness on our behalf. We need a spirit who will live within us and empower us to do what we would not be otherwise able to do. Recovery, repair, and restoration back to the image of God in which we were created. Coming to God in pieces so that he can make us whole. It's really important for us to understand this. That Saul was in the midst of his greatest sin when he met Jesus. He did not have it all together. And if we were honest with each other, we don't have it all together. None of us do. Jesus meets Saul on the road as he's going to imprison Christians and eventually kill them. Jesus meets Saul where he is and changes him. The second major shift that we see in in Saul's life is his charge. His charge is different. His mission, his motivation, his movement is different because if God is calling us out of something, he's calling us to something. What was Saul's charge? Saul was was in charge of, of making sure that the message of Jesus didn't get too far. He was doing a pretty good job of it too. But his charge changes once he meets Jesus. You see, Saul is not changed to savor the experience but to share the existence. 
The existence of the resurrected Jesus and how Jesus is in the business of making the old washed away and the new be present. Saul is saved to tell others. And I love the way that these verses break down. The second half of the verses that we read. Verse 20 says, at once. Here we see the urgency of Saul. He gets this change happen in his life and he has to communicate it with somebody. At once he begins to preach. Not about his recovery or his restoration, but Jesus' resurrection. Verse 21 says, all those who heard him were astonished. And it made me want to ask the question, are others astonished at the work of Jesus in our lives or can they even see his work? Verse 27 says, Barnabas talks of Saul preaching fearlessly. People are after him to kill him. Yet he still preaches the word fearlessly. Verse 28 says that he was speaking boldly in the name of the Lord Now here, this is interesting because he's with the disciples. It doesn't say that he was scared or panicked or had any fear, but he was with the disciples who who spent three years with Jesus. They walked with him. They watched him feed thousands of people with a little boy's lunch. They watched him perform miracle after miracle, raising people from the dead. They questioned him. He questioned them. These are the disciples. It says that he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord. And so I asked myself, why is there no anxiety for Saul? My goodness, this terrifies me to stand up here and talk in front of people. And he's with the disciples talking in a group of people that that fear him because they fear that he's going to kill them. But he has no fear at all. He speaks boldly. Why is there no anxiety for Saul? Get this. This is important. Because true life change in Jesus is worth communicating no matter the personal cost. The name of Jesus is far more important than mine. Recovery is not found in me. I cannot repair anyone's sinful and broken heart. I cannot restore anyone back to the image of God, but I can show anyone Jesus. So what is our charge as Christians, as Christ followers? Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. He says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Christ's ambassadors. So here it is, really easy. What is our charge? What is our mission? What is our motivation? What is our movement? We are to share the story of the resurrected Jesus. That's it. We are to share the story of the resurrected Jesus. And what is our charge as a church? As a church, what are are we about What are we really about? I know what we say we're about, but what are we really about? I believe that our mission is his message and that our focus is his forgiveness and that our drive is his determination for relationship with each and every one of us. If life change is a moment-by-moment surrender of my everything for his everything, then change must continue to happen during this mission, during this charge. I love that Saul has two key influencers during this time. The first one is Ananias, right? Ananias, really hesitant to go and talk to Saul. 
but we need to be Ananias to someone. We need to acknowledge the faults, know the danger, and pursue it anyway with the words of brother on our lips. I always ask, what happens to Saul if Ananias doesn't show up? We also need to be Barnabas to someone. We need to see others as ambassadors for Christ. We need to stand up and stand with others as Jesus molds and shapes and sharpens each of us. Ephesians 5, 1 through 2, wonderful charge here by Paul himself. He's telling the church in Ephesus, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and live a life of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Be imitators of God. If we are imitating God, if we are following God, then we're not following ourselves. Being imitators of God requires that we surrender. And I'm not just talking about surrendering the parts that that everybody can see. I'm talking about surrendering the parts that nobody can see. Kyle Eidelman writes in his book, Not a Fan. He says, a belief, no matter how sincere, if not reflected in reality, isn't a belief. It's a delusion. Being imitators and followers of God. This verse also challenges us to live a life of love. Why? Because because Jesus doesn't invite us into his family and then have us sit on the sidelines and watch him work. Jesus invites us into the game. And if we're going to be in the game, then we have to love. And if we only love that are easy to love, then we have missed the point of Jesus, and I would argue that we have never really experienced true life change in Jesus. Be imitators of God, live a life of love, and sacrifice yourself. Tom Davis writes in his book, Red Letters, we spend most of our time trying to protect what we have, fearing what would happen if it went away. When we do this, we become shackled to our possessions. In essence, we limit our range of motion. We can't reach far enough to offer compassion because our arms are too busy holding all onto ourself. Self-sacrificing, is it tiring? Yes. Is it necessary? Absolutely. So I want to ask, what is it that we need to surrender What is holding us hostage? Whatever that is, I'm here to tell you today that it's okay to give up. My grandpa Craig spent most of his life caring for his wife, my grandmother, who had polio. Polio is a disease that attacks muscle groups, and for my grandmother, it attacked her legs. She used a walker or crutches for most of her life or a wheelchair. Grandma was in a nursing home for the last several years of her life, and we all thought that Grandma was going to pass first. But instead, Grandpa got real sick, was in the hospital for a while. I remember getting a phone call from my mom. I was in school at Lincoln. She said, hey, we need you to get up to Peoria. We think Grandpa's going to die soon. So I get in my car, and I, I get there. I remember being in the room with most of the Craig side of the family. We're standing there and we're, we're sharing memories. We're laughing because we don't want Grandpa to leave this world with tears but with laughter. 
But tears kept coming because we watched Grandpa struggle to breathe, each breath feeling more difficult than the one before. It just, it pained us to watch him struggling. What was he holding on to? What was he holding on for? We were all going up and embracing him for one last time, holding his hand, praying over him, telling him that we love him. And I remember my dad finally leaning in as breaths got more and more difficult. He leaned in and he said, don't worry, Dad, we'll take care of Mom. You can let go. Go meet Jesus. It was a few minutes later and he was gone. There's lots of things to draw from that. But what, what hits home with us today is that if you want to meet Jesus, you have to let go. You have to give up. And it's okay to let go. It's okay to give up. You are not giving in to your addictions. You are not giving in to the possessions that persecute Jesus. You are not giving in to the thoughts that hold you captive. You are simply giving in to a Savior that's just going to hold you. And to give us new life. To give us back our identity in him. You see, each of us has something to surrender. You're not alone. This is not a place of judgment. This is a place of love and care. Each of us has something to surrender. I love the words that Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1. 15 through 16, he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who believe in him and receive eternal life. Jesus is waiting for you because you are worth it. Remember, the first thing that your past holds is the image of God. So embrace recovery with Jesus. Embrace repair with Jesus. Embrace restoration with Jesus. Because every moment of the day is a chance to let Jesus hold you. Share in his mission, share in his motivation, share in his movement, life change. Say moment by moment surrender. Saying, I can't do this. Surrendering my everything for his everything. And true life change in Jesus is worth communicating no matter the cost.